0: I'm Austin and this is Validated. Today I'm speaking with Michael Wagner, CEO and co-founder of Automata, the core development studio behind Star Atlas. Star Atlas is a high production value, space-themed game built on Solana. Blockchain games and Web3 games are terms that get used as if they mean something monolithic. But in reality, there are a number of ways that game developers have integrated blockchains into their games. In games where you can mint characters or items as NFTs, 99% of the game itself still exists off-chain, functionally indistinguishable from any other game built today. But Michael and the Star Atlas team are striving to develop something much more ambitious. They're building Star Atlas so that the blockchain, in this case, Solana, functions as the game's infrastructure. Right off the bat, Michael describes why this infrastructural design is compelling for Star Atlas, the technology scope of how it all works, and ultimately its impact on the user experience. Whenever I talk about Web3 games, the elephant in the room is always games. The games industry as it stands today is incredibly profitable and with strong moats. So why disrupt something that's working so well? Why build on a blockchain? Michael and I address this question from a variety of perspectives, including the evolution of the video game industry's monetization models over time, and what decentralization and ownership can mean for a gamer's experience. We also get into the potential challenges of user education, Competing with Web2 marketing budgets, and the degree to which a project like Star Atlas can ever fully decentralize. Michael is a self proclaimed crypto maxi, and it's interesting to hear him talk about the philosophical significance of not abstracting away the blockchain for Star Atlas users. If you have thoughts about this episode or suggestions for future guests or topics, reach out to us at validated at solana.org. Let's dive in. Michael, welcome to Validated.
1: Austin, awesome. fantastic to be here. I feel like this is long time overdue.
0: Yeah, it's going to be great. Blockchain gaming has had a very up and down cycle, let's call it that. You know, I think especially when you look back to when you guys originally sort of like conceived of this project and started building, the direction of blockchain gaming was very sort of unclear at that point. And, you know... Some of the other folks who are building games and projects in in that space beat you to market, but they beat you to market with stuff that is not really, I would say, blockchain gaming, right? I, I was originally very bearish on blockchain gaming because it was like, ah, here's gaming with a tiny little bit of blockchain integration. The same way that like back in 2010, all of these games were like, oh, we've built Twitter integration into like Call of Duty. And you're like, I don't really care. And for a long time, blockchain gaming has sort of felt like it's something very similar to that, where you have what is effectively a fully centralized company running just like any other company would. And all of the game actually takes place off-chain, but you know, we've decided we're gonna mint characters as NFTs, or we're gonna let you buy a few items using USDC, and we're gonna use Forte, and we're gonna call that blockchain gaming. And you guys took a very different approach, but I want to kind of go back to those early days of, you know, probably like mid-2020 when you're starting to think about, okay, a game on blockchain, what could that look like? Like, how did that original vision for Star Atlas kind of solidify for you?
1: Well, first and foremost, I love that you draw the distinction between the various types of blockchain games. And I think that there's at least three avenues that a studio can take. And you referred to the first of which, which is really just building a traditional game and then minting NFTs and integrating those into the game. And while I do think it's fair to categorize those as a form of blockchain game, I also think it's a little bit disingenuous. While it provides value to the player in being able to have this true asset ownership, you know, and the free market capability of trading these and, and maybe accruing some value to that asset over time based on time spent in game, uh, I don't think it Nearly encompasses the full potential of integrating blockchain. And so the next step of that would be crypto native economy. So the in game currency, the gold, if you will, is also a cryptocurrency. This unlocks the potential for play to earn. Extending beyond that, which we also do at the Star Atlas, is uh, the integration of a governance token. And in our case, it's quite expansive in the scope of development influence that the community and stakeholders are going to be able to participate in. But really, Beyond all of that, where I see the full potential is through this idea of abstracting game logic from a game engine. In our case, that's either Unreal Engine or Play Canvas or any other environment that we decide to develop in and delivering that through on-chain programs and in our case on Solana. And what we want to do is turn Solana into the game server, into the game engine. And the reason why I believe that has the most potential, and this is sort of what I was alluding to at the very start of the conversation, is through on-chain composability and extensibility, it's very possible, and we're already seeing, teams develop services, you know, financial products and extensions of our own game, a way to essentially modify the game through integration with this on-chain logic. And that is very much like a layer one ecosystem itself, wherein The whole objective is to deliver primitives, attract developers and builders, and enable them to create something of their own that ultimately enhances the entire product offering. The value proposition of Star Atlas is not just that we're delivering you this great entertainment experience, but that we're delivering you an opportunity to build alongside us. And that can happen in a variety of ways. But our vision largely has not changed. Um, If anything, the scope has expanded since inception, but we've always had this idea of differentiating ourselves in a couple of different ways. The first of those was through AAA game development. And that means a lot of things, and that's also a term that's thrown around a lot, but ultimately can be summarized as just best-in-class development in the form of graphical fidelity, in the storytelling, in the lore, in the audio, in the visual effects, in the asset creation and modeling itself, and also the gameplay mechanics and covering the full spectrum of how do we deliver this immersive experience that really encapsulates the sense of escapism that people strive for when they're playing a video game. You want to feel like you're in that world and you are that character. And so that was step number one was we're going to go after AAA when nobody's really going after AAA. But on the other end of that is how do we best leverage this decentralized technology that is Solana to provide the
0: opportunity that I just described? I want to take these as like several different phases of conversation as we go through this because one of the interesting pieces is when you think about decentralized gaming, right, and decentralized games, there's many different parts of that that we can look at, right? One is on a technology stack and I want to spend a bunch of time kind of on that because there's very few companies that are building games and building net new technology that are not like the in-house studios owned by Sony or Microsoft directly. But at the same time, When you're building games in a decentralized fashion, at least on some part, you're talking about governance, right? That is something that's also very net new, right? There's a lot of different types of decisions you have to make in terms of like, okay, so how do we even philosophically design a game that is meant to be governed in some part by the community? And there's, you know... 20 years now of massively multiplayer online games getting that right and getting that wrong. But this is sort of like a radical version of what that could even look like. But I want to start kind of today on a bit of the the technology stack side. Because if you're developing a game in Web 2 or for a console like massively oversimplification. You download Unreal Engine, you buy some licenses, you hire some engineers, you use the SDKs that Microsoft and Sony and, you know, Windows and Steam and all these other game distributors and platforms put out. But when you're trying to build something on blockchain, and especially something that is more than just a PFP minted on-chain that then talks to an off-chain game, uh, there's a huge amount of underlying tech that just did not exist in 2021 when you guys started this. So walk me through a little bit like what you thought the technology scope process would be when you started building and then what you actually found it had to be once you actually started really starting to build and play a game.
1: It's, It's such a great point. I think people at large underestimate the amount of innovation that we're creating right now as a necessity of building the tools that will enable us to fulfill this vision that we've outlined. I can take it all the way back to April of 2021, where we wanted to be able to sell some of our NFTs on a marketplace. And back then, uh, although it wasn't that long ago, it feels like decades ago, but back then, even things like having a, like an easy-to-access, refined marketplace for us to sell our assets didn't really exist. Bonfita was around, and I think they were probably the very first to start listing some NFTs but it didn't necessarily satisfy our needs. So the first thing we did was actually set out and build a marketplace that integrated Serum at the time uh, as our central limit order book. And it, like that is not game development, right? So we're, we're talking about building a game, but our first step was building this piece of technology that allowed us to monetize the asset offering that we were that we we're bringing out uh, same thing would be true for our governance system and the locking programs that we have behind that now, we've been able to leverage to some extent some uh, open source programs so uh, we we started with the foundation of tribeca for our dao but we've had to go through and modify virtually every aspect of that to be custom tailored again to our development requirements now where it starts to get more extensive is when we think about the idea of building out this real-time on-chain gaming environment. So you'll probably recall from 2019, yeah. 2020, a lot of games were these kind of card games or they were turn-based. And so the the real-time delivery of game actions wasn't as important. In our case, we wanted to deliver this gaming experience that feels very much like a traditional gaming experience, which is you move, you take actions, those actions are immediately replicated and delivered back to the client. And so this is one of the reasons why we selected Solana initially is because of the scalability, because of the low cost of operations and this low inherent latency, the sub-second finality that was talked about a lot back then. And so if you're a gamer, you know that you know, one of your biggest enemies is lag. And we probably don't run into that all too often now, given broadband capabilities. But nevertheless, if you're getting lag, then it really diminishes the gaming experience for you as a player. And so we knew that if we wanted to do this, uh, we needed low latency inherently. I'm also very excited about Fire Dancer, by the way, but um, yes, and, and high transaction throughput and low cost. Those are all of the things that are going to directly impact our players. And some of the um, other primitives, if you will, that we've developed include a something that we call Starcom, which is our middleware. It's an MMO game server. It captures the data from the blockchain. It delivers that to the client, and then the users through the client front end are able to take actions. That goes back to the blockchain, and we create this full
0: loop. I want to get into some of that because Solana is a very fast blockchain, and it is still a pretty slow service compare it to a centralized service, right? Blocks that are 400 milliseconds long, that is a amount of lag no gamer would tolerate. And at the same time, you have this principle of like, we want to put as much on chain as possible and have as much reflected through this system. So talk a little bit about that middleware and like where you guys decided to draw the line between like, okay, this stuff doesn't have to be on chain. This stuff really has to. And there's this whole category in the middle that we're like trying to figure out how to make work. It's helpful to maybe preface this and just
1: note that we are developing across multiple environments at Automata. That's the studio behind Star Atlas. And so the Unreal Engine product, that's our hyper-realistic cinematic open-world MMO, like AAA product. We also have a browser-based application that's more top-down real-time strategy. And then we have a mobile application that's in development as well. And where we synchronize all of those environments is through Solana. Now, the implementation of Solana across those environments will differ. So in Unreal Engine, it's very unlikely that we have combat systems on-chain, but in the browser-based application, we will. It's more deterministic outcomes of of a player engagement. But with that being said, our ambition is to develop and deliver as much of the logic on-chain as possible, which means we rely heavily on Solana and Solana reliability, as well as data services that are up and coming. Now, Starcom is the service that reads chain data and delivers that to the client, and that did not exist prior to us creating it. Uh, We also started this service, and I actually talked about this at Breakpoint last year. It was under a working title of, of Fuzzy Lemur. That was an internal name that we were using, but This was an indexing and caching service, and it just allowed us to re-chain data incredibly quickly. We have since deprecated our development on Fuzzy Lemur because we engaged with a team called Hello Moon. Coincidentally, they were building out essentially the exact same technology stack that we were using for Fuzzy Lemur, but that is their sole focus as a company, right? And so, you know, we don't necessarily want to go out and expend resources for developing all of these primitives and all of this base tech, but... In many cases, we are really pioneering this field, and so we've been forced to develop stuff that we didn't necessarily want to at inception.
0: So Unreal Engine, famously, sort of started as a game, right? Like, the, the origins of the term Unreal are, like, Unreal Tournament, right? And, and that is, like, a huge backdrop of what is now today a technology company that is in self-driving cars it it renders that crazy new sphere in las vegas like it's gone far beyond just a gaming framework at this point do you see like a future where a lot of the tech behind star atlas is actually more of like a services and framework company that many other games are building on or, or do you guys really consider this to be something that is built-in service of the end vision of this game? It would depend
1: on who you spoke to on the team, but from my perspective, we are building a lot of technology that I think certainly could be commercialized or open-sourced and provide value to the Solana ecosystem and potentially other protocols in the future. It's not where we're spending a lot of our time. We certainly have a, a plan and a path for how we could monetize such services, but our focus is, is very much on building this best-in-class gaming experience first and foremost. We've also developed two additional primitives. One of those is what we call our DAC platform. So the guild system in Star Atlas is a decentralized autonomous corporation that was inspired somewhat by EVE Online's corporation system for guilds, but in our case, obviously Web3, so decentralized and autonomous. We built a platform that allows for guild registration, recruitment, member management, and permission setting all on chain. Also, uh, we're just about to deliver what we're currently calling the Starless account, but this is effectively your passport to Web3 games. It can actually work with all games across the Solana ecosystem. It allows for an account creation and then a profile creation and then allocating characters as well as assets to each of those accounts, and then setting permissions between wallets. And this was important because when you do have a lot of transactions as part of the game mechanics, and we advocate for hardware wallets, cold storage wallets, uh, vehemently, we don't want you to be signing transactions with your hardware wallet nonstop. That detracts from the experience as well. And so how can we essentially establish a uh, framework that lets people safely store their assets in cold storage and at the same time during a game session, leverage what is effectively a hot wallet solution with auto approve, without compromising the security of the assets. And, and what we're able to do is essentially create a, a permissioned tunnel for certain actions to take place in that hot wallet. But things like transferring into a non-whitelisted address is a core gatekeeping mechanism. So you can move them into the hot wallet, you can take all of the game actions, but the only place they can transfer out is back into your cold storage wallet. So that is your like core security and creates the seamlessness of the game experience. But I, I wanted to touch on those because we're, we're super excited about Star Atlas account and how that in and of itself could turn into this platform that lets people play multiple games, earn XP, earn badges. And this is kind yeah. of, again, to your, your earlier question about where do we see these services going? Are they just for Star Atlas? The answer is they're not. But we have to build the game first, in our opinion.
0: So last year in November at Breakpoint, there's a Solana Games Day. And you guys showed a early demo of what actually it would look like to play the AAA Star Atlas game. Walk folks through what that experience was like then and sort of where you guys are at now and sort of what timeline people should be thinking of for the AAA game.
1: So Star Atlas conceptually is a space simcade is what we're calling it. Uh, So kind of like a, a space sim, but with easier access and more immediate action in game.
0: So it's not as hard
1: as Kerbal Space Program? Not at all, yeah. People draw parallels to Star Citizen uh, with us a lot, and there's a lot of people on our team that work for Star Citizen and a lot of people that are uh, very fond of that game. Uh, But it's so realistic that sometimes you spend time doing things that you don't necessarily want to. At least that's our perspective. Some people are really into that. But we wanted this immediacy of action. So it's quick to get to your spaceship. It's quick to get out and start engaging in battles and, and maybe just having fun. Uh, But open world MMO. Now, it will take us a long time to get to the final state of Star Atlas. We've talked about this since the beginning, you know, having a minimum roadmap of five to seven years. If you look at something like Starfield, for example, Bethesda game, it's about to launch. That was 10 years in development, 25 years in the making is what they say, right? So these things do take quite a while to develop. But back in November, we not only demoed, but we actually launched the first version of Star Atlas, which was this showroom module. And we launched on Epic Game Store. It's actually available now. It is in a closed pre-alpha access, but we are pretty liberal with distributing out uh, these game access keys. So if you hop in our Discord, we can get you a, a code to download and play. But the showroom back then was really about showcasing the beauty of the environment itself. There were a couple of ships that people could load in. There were a few experiences like a training program where you could participate in PVE combat out in space. So you could use a Pure Sex 4 to fight other ships. And then within the showroom itself, there was a time trial race course. So you could navigate through these gates and compete against the clock and land on leaderboards depending on how you performed. Now, Just last month, we released Showroom 2.1 version, and this was a pretty considerable improvement uh, and enhancement to where we were at just in November. But through this, the Showroom itself now adds not only the initial time trial course, but it also adds a ground racing hover course. And I'll share here with you that we are targeting Breakpoint as another major announcement date for us this year. The biggest thing here is that we are working with an emerging authoritative server infrastructure company that we haven't shared the name of just yet. But through that, what we are preparing to showcase is 5,000 concurrent users in a single instance, and then going into the end of the year, being able to support 30,000 concurrent players in a single instance. And I've been asked why that's important. And the truth is, this is something that's never been done before. Most MMO Uh, server infrastructure can support something like 100 players in a single environment before you have like server meshing, or you just have separate instances or separate servers that people join. But we want the entire universe, the whole populace of Star Atlas to exist within a single server in a single area so that we can have massive space battles. And you can have these vibrant, flourishing societies on the central space stations. And you don't have to worry about, did I join the server that my friend joined? We think this is really powerful, but even with our racing module, for example, we think it's going to be possible to have these live tournaments, live races, with attendees being real players sitting in the grandstands looking over these. And I think it's quite viable that we have some notorious racers and maybe professional gamers playing this, and instead of watching them on Twitch, you can actually join the game and watch them in real
0: time in the server itself. I think that's really, really cool. So let's project a few years forward. How are you guys thinking about competing in the traditional AAA game market, especially in terms of marketing? One of the fascinating pieces about the recent Microsoft Activision acquisition lawsuit is that we finally know how much the stuff actually costs, and the numbers are pretty astonishing. If we look at a AAA game like Call of Duty, it costs somewhere around $250 million to develop, plus another $250 million to market it. You guys have successfully raised investment rounds in the past, but not $500 million worth of raises. So how are you thinking about Star Atlas breaking into the mainstream AAA game market when you're competing against these massive marketing budgets like that? Even if the final production quality of Star Atlas is as good as anything else out there right now, building stuff on blockchain usually means less marketing budget. Plus, there's this whole aspect of marketing that usually involves user education around how to use something like a wallet.
1: Well. In so many ways, I don't really think they're competitive with our story and with what we're trying to create. And I also think that we have a major head start and advantage in terms of understanding this technology. Our team, particularly across the the co founding group, you know, I've been in the space for ten years. This is the second company that I've launched. I've been Web three native since realistically, 2015, when I was full-time crypto and and mining script coins back in 2013. But both our chief product officer and our chief technology officer, who are also co-founders, it's Danny Floyd and Jacob Floyd, have a decade of experience in the space as well. And again, our vision from inception was this full on-chain game logic development. We knew that was the route we wanted to take. So I think we have a a, a huge head start in terms of not only understanding the tech, but also building with it. That's number one, but the value proposition itself, and your question was why on chain? Well, these other games don't deliver any of the value components that we're offering the asset ownership, the play to earn, mm-hmm. the governance structure, and the integration capabilities. So I think we will compete on the entertainment scope, which is is are our, our, our game mechanics more fun or or equally as fun as these other games that are coming out? And I think the answer is yes. I think the videos that we've released demonstrate that we're not only leading AAA game development in the Web3 space, but genuinely leading AAA game development, period. That's across all games. The fact that you can explore the interiors of your ships and you can look at the keyboard and you can see the tactileness of a key on that keyboard, you know, and you can open cabinets and you can open drawers and you can see yourself sitting in the cockpit, you can pull out weapons. I mean, all of these things that genuinely make it AAA, but also at the highest visual fidelity, I think, really sets us apart. And so we're competing on the entertainment scale and the quality scale, um, but where we have the advantages on understanding this tech and what value it offers. On the marketing side, you're right. We haven't taken any conventional approach to marketing, but my perspective is that it's not really appropriate for us to do so at this stage anyway, because we are still early stage. We don't want to necessarily go out and start promoting Star Atlas to the traditional gamer where there's already this stigma out there that you know crypto games or nfts are scams and so that is going to be an obstacle that we have to overcome at some point but i think the product will speak for itself and that will demonstrate that this is a real thing that can actually be executed but we don't want to do that too early where we try to draw them in and then they're left with a, uh, a less than desirable total experience i think the expectations from a lot of gamers is when it's ready to be downloaded, I can play the full game. I can complete missions. I can do everything that you've promised in the you know in whatever documents you release, in our case, say, a white paper. But that's not how we operate we We build openly, we release these modules, we expand on the feature set over time, and uh our players, our users, get to experience all of that firsthand. so it's very much behind the scenes look at game development that I think really hasn't been done before
0: so gamers are notoriously, let's call them fussy. The gamer community revolted, in the United States at least, revolted pretty strong against mobile games before embracing them. Uh, They were very opposed to subscription model games before they started embracing them. The transition from PC to console was a rough one for a lot of gamers going even further back and, you know, currently I think the perception of blockchain fill in the blank in the gaming community is pretty poor, if not outright aggressive and adversarial today. Uh, I, I think it's pretty easy to look at that trend and be like, well, eventually it'll come around. Now, I know you're not going after mainstream gamers yet, but I assume you eventually will. So I'm wondering how you've been thinking about what the education process looks like in the context of let's call it the conservative gamer mindset of don't touch my games. What's
1: maybe funny, or I don't know that it's coincidental, but I think those eras that you described of transition of game development and, and maybe the reticence to participate in them has almost always corresponded with the monetization strategy of those games. You know, We, we were mm. originally used to, I'm going to buy this cartridge or I'm going to buy this CD and I'm going to install it and I get the full game right and that's it that's my that's my expense mobile came out with free to play but realistically it's it's pay to progress you know you could enhance your experience by paying money and that's been incredibly successful and then more modern era the accusation is well you're not delivering me a complete game you're giving me the start of a game and then i have to buy the dlc so our model is once again a slightly different one which is you don't actually have to pay for the game. The game is free to access. Uh, What you have to purchase are the assets that you use within the game. And in our case, you can spend $5 or you can spend $100,000 if you want, or you can spend millions of dollars if you want to do that. We are responsible for striking a balance because the other, I guess, risk or concern that's out there is, is this pay to win? And By its very nature, if you're spending a million dollars and somebody's spending five, you are naturally going to be more competitive than that person in a game. But we can create a balance through the progression system that allows those assets to unlock through time and essentially providing people with the right to utilize all that they've purchased. But again, I think it's just the simple fact that the monetization strategies have changed through time and players look at this as a method of extracting more value out of them. What's different about Web3, what's different about a game like Star Atlas is it's not a single transaction flow into us as a studio. It's actually a bilateral transaction flow wherein they can pull value back out of the game. Yes, there's a cost to enter just like any product, and that's purchasing your assets. But producing revenue off those assets is one way that you win as a consumer or as a player and also the potential to take items that you've discovered your loot or crafted through gameplay and sell that directly to another player. It doesn't have to go back to us. We don't have to be the buyers of that. And so that's only possible because of blockchain
0: as well. Yeah, you you roll back 20 years and you get to Second Life, right? And Second Life, I think, is basically still running today. And there's still people whose full-time jobs is like a land broker in Second Life, Is that sort of where you see the future of this stuff going like when it's launched is that there's people who are the same way that in the real world there's folks who will like build you a tricked out classic car like do you expect there's actually a a world in the future where there's like someone who's like yeah like full time my job is actually like building ships in Star Atlas and selling them to people who don't want to build their own ships. 100 percent. and We already have another guild or a DAC in our ecosystem, AFIA, who
1: intend to operate across all three different factions, and they want to be the number one manufacturer in the game. And there's a bunch of steps that are necessary to get to that point. But, you know, it starts with extracting these, these raw resources, refining those, progressing your character to the point where you can craft items, and then also owning the blueprints. But once you get to that point, you know, if you can operate as a collective, as one of these corporations in the game, you can have all of your guild members going out and, say, sourcing materials. This is it's, it's logistically intensive, just as it would be in the real world. You have to figure these things out yeah. and where the opportunities lie. And there's no guarantee that you are going to be profitable. It depends on how well you execute. But I certainly see that as being possible. I'll give you an example that's sooner to come, which is in our skin system. And I think the cosmetics is another massive market in games today. Um, skins in CSGO, uh, you know, we're seeing these things sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's not even an asset that you really own. You have to go trade it on a black market if you actually want to sell the thing, right? But the approach that we're going to be taking is we as a studio are not creating all of the skins and selling all of the skins. What we're going to do is provide players with that uh, ability to extract resources and then turn those into crafted modifications to your character. So the way you look and the colors that you have access to depend on the rarity of the resources that you've been able to go out and collect. This is a form of UGC. Somebody can create a custom character skin and sell that to another player because they've gone and extracted the resources. And this really reinforces the economic loops, which is something that we've put enormous energy into is, you know, I think the concern with Play to Earn is it was hyperinflated and not sustainable. And like my background and the team that we have here focuses heavily on how do we create something that actually pairs producers with consumers. It's not just about inflation through an emission curve, but rather matching buyers and sellers. And that is where I think we can reach stability in the economy. And And I do think it'll take some time to get there, but that's the objective.
0: Yeah. So I want to talk about the in-game economies a little bit and specifically how that interfaces with things like community governance, right? I, I think if you turned the U.S. Uh, treasury policy over to a bunch of crypto folks, stuff would look pretty different and a lot of stuff would break, <laughs> to yeah. put it mildly. But that is, in some ways, what's what's being proposed and what's going on here is that there's there's community governance... In parts of Star Atlas, you know, World of Warcraft very famously got it wrong and then had to fix it back in the early days. There's lots of other examples of the folks getting it wrong and having to go in. I think EVE Online has had a number of like, you know, something in between economic intervention, stimulus packages and bailouts that have occurred kind of over the years. How does that work when you have players voting on that? You have, quite frankly, people voting on things like how the economy is going to run who maybe are not economists, don't have any real sense of economic training. They're just voting for a giant airdrop to themselves or something like that. How have you thought through some of those, like, practical problems of both governance capture, right? Like, oh, I'm going to vote just to mint some really powerful weapons that happen to be minted where my faction happens to have folks or something along those lines.
1: So we've taken a very slow methodical approach to how we roll out decentralized governance. In fact, we've only just recently released the proposal mechanism on our DAO. And so that's going to allow for players to submit their own proposals on changes that they would like to see. The reality is what we've communicated from inception is that we have a vision of full decentralization and autonomy across our universe. But at this point in time, we need to be largely in control of defining parameters. And so we do have the expertise, we have the team, we have the ability to kind of guide these game systems in a way that we think is going to be most productive and most successful in the long term. And so even though we've just recently released the governance functionality, we inherently have what is effectively a veto capability over that governance system as well. And this is not to take away from players' Right. It's actually, again, just to ensure that this is stewarded in the right direction in the near term with the intention of turning over greater and greater authority to that stakeholder base over time. And that's the polis stakeholders and what we're calling polisticians. Um, so polis is the governance token. But creating something like Star Atlas does require a high degree of centralized management and delegation at the start. But once we build the foundation, that's when more and more control gets turned over to the, the user base
0: itself. How decentralized do you expect Star Atlas to be? Like, I think if we're talking about like the end goal of something like a Uniswap or an Open Book or something like that, is to be basically fully permissionless and fully decentralized. The end state of a game is obviously very different, but wh- where do you think that Star Atlas falls on that spectrum?
1: I think we fall on the far end of the fully decentralized spectrum. That is, that's the long-term goal. I mean, I'm a crypto maximalist. We hear about Bitcoin. And I think what Bitcoin has been able to uh, accomplish is pure genius, but it's probably the only true censorship resistant network that exists today, decentralized network that exists today. I think, you know, again, Solana on the Nakamoto coefficient does quite well. But as long as we are the central authority behind Star Atlas, it can in fact be censored and shut down at some point in time. Now, it's very difficult in our case because we're talking about things like game servers that run Unreal Engine, for example, run the game clients. I mean, these are things that are incredibly challenging to decentralize and still maintain uh, network performance. So this might be a pipe dream. But my goal would not only be to deliver the game, get the governance structure decentralized, allow for creators to develop the future of Star Atlas for this world to evolve, and maybe just a quick tangent, I've often said that Star Atlas as a product is one that really is never complete, just like our world around us is never complete. Because if even if our studio is no longer responsible for developing it, we've structured the DAO in a way that it collects revenue off of the entire GDP of the Star Atlas economy. So it has a cash flow and income stream, which can then be leveraged to encourage development or engage in contracts or pay developers or other studios to build the next version of this with or without us. And so in that way, this is an organism that can continuously grow. And I think it's something that if we do this right, could live for, you know, 100 years plus, uh, hundreds of years, it could essentially live on in perpetuity and be that digital world that we all exist in the metaverse. A long way to go from where we are today to that end goal. But if we were able to not only do those things, but also create a node structure wherein you can host an instance of the game locally, and we get that distributed all over the world, that is analogous to the way the Bitcoin operates today. And it could not be stopped unless you were to stop the internet, right? And this is the argument for Bitcoin, and that's where I'd like to see Star Atlas go. A lot of technical challenges, but you know, technology progresses quite quickly.
0: How much do you think the average star Atlas player is going to know about a blockchain when the game is launched how, like how much abstraction are you thinking is the right level for for a game this is kind of a spicy question
1: because I have a controversial take on this I, I've talked about this in previous interviews as well but my viewpoint which is maybe counterproductive to the business lens is that I do not want to completely abstract away blockchain and the argument in favor of of abstracting is ease of entry. We can grow quicker if we eliminate the blockchain elements and people don't even know and you know I've often heard people refer to TCP/IP as an analogy to blockchain in that nobody cares about the protocol what they care about is what are they able to do with it? You can access the internet, you can access browsers, you can do everything you want to do online. You don't need to understand TCP/IP, but where my perspective differs is that there is a philosophy to cryptocurrency and to blockchain. And that is this self-sovereign ownership that is possible because of the tech. You know, we don't want to drive people to centralized exchanges. We want to drive them to this new paradigm of crypto and decentralized everything that allows them full control over their life in many ways, their, their technological life. And that could even extend to things like digital identity. I'm very fond of the zero knowledge digital identity management platform proposals that are out there, even though that hasn't really been executed well yet. But the idea that your personal ID could be stored on chain and, you know, without sharing any information, you can validate requests that come into that. Like if you go to a bar and the bar wants to know if you're 21 years old or 18, wherever you are in the world, you can scan your QR code and it can say, yes, they're over 21 and maybe with your picture, but not share any information about, say, your birthday. Right or being able to travel around the world and be authorized to go to different countries using this digital identity as a, as a passport of sorts. But I'm very strongly a believer in that ethos. And so therefore, I do not want to completely abstract away the blockchain. And while I know that it will be more of a burden on us to educate users on the benefits of integration into this new paradigm. It's a challenge that I'm willing to take on because I think the benefits are strongly in favor of the user. And I think we genuinely do them a disservice if we don't at least inform them as to why it is we're doing what we're doing and what opportunities they have in front of them.
0: Well, Michael, thank you for joining us today on Validated. Validated is produced by Ray Belli with help from Ross Cohen, Brandon Ector, Amira Valiani, and Ainsley Medford. Engineering by Tyler Morissette.